You're listening to part one of If You Build It, Will They Come, a two-part podcast series from producer Karen Given. In this series, Karen explores the debate over public versus private funding of sports venues by digging into Indianapolis, a city that famously got its NFL team 40 years ago when the Colts left Baltimore. Find more episodes of our series by searching Global Sport Matters Podcast wherever you listen. And now, on to the show. I want to take you back to late March 1984. This wasn't the first time a sports team picked up and moved to another city, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. But there's a mythology that's built up around this moment, one that still floats around like a cautionary tale whenever a sports team threatens to leave. It looked like a scene from an old mystery picture, a fleet of large moving vans in the rain at the Colts complex in Owings Mills. And inside, the infamous Mayflower move that brought the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis, that's chapter four in my book. That's Philip B. Wilson, a semi-retired journalist, former Colts beat writer, and the author of 100 Things Colts Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Wilson wasn't in Indianapolis when the Colts arrived. No, I was uh, I was trying to flunk out of college in 1984. It was probably the farthest thing from my mind. But over the years, he's interviewed many of the people who were there, in front of the news cameras and behind the scenes, as the Colts packed up and left Baltimore in the middle of the night. So they sent 14 tractor-trailer trucks to Owings Mills, Maryland. First one showed up at 7. And once they got one truck loaded, they sent another. So they're very gradual and and careful about it. And about 8 or 9 o'clock, the media started catching on something was going on. Guards kept the media and the fans away, and then in the early morning, the vans began to roll out and head west. But it wasn't just the media and the fans who were kept in the dark. Wilson talked to former Colts linebacker Barry Krause. Krause says he was in his apartment, which overlooked the team complex. And teammate Pat Beach phoned him and said, look outside. He looked out and saw the Mayflower vans rolling in. Krause says he didn't know what to do. He called Jim Ursay. Jim Ursay. These days, he's the owner and CEO of the Colts. But back in the 80s, his father, Robert Ursay, was in charge. And uh, Krause said he was told by Jimmy, he said, if you want to play for the Colts, you better head to Indianapolis. When you hear people tell this story today, they sometimes make it sound like the move was sudden, out of the blue. And to be fair, the deal that brought the Colts to town took just six weeks to iron out. But this was actually the culmination of something Indianapolis had been working towards since the mid-1960s. The fairest way to put it is that they came up with the Field of Dreams before the movie Field of Dreams is made. If you build it, you know, they will come or he will come. Uh, In this case, the team will come. But the city's strategy wasn't just about luring an NFL team. It was about revitalizing the entire downtown area with pro sports, amateur sports, college sports. Bill Hudnut, the mayor at the time, he had a very progressive attitude about wanting to put Indianapolis on the map and, and sports was a part of that. The city already had some success. Indianapolis hosted the National Sports Festival in 1982. They had the Indianapolis 500 and the Indiana Pacers. But an NFL team, that was the real prize. 
And so, with public funds and a major donation from the Lilly Endowment, the city built the Hoosier Dome. You know, I don't know that it was anything special. I mean, by today's standards, it certainly wasn't. But the seats were dark blue and silver, the roof was white, and those just happened to be the team colors of the Colts, a team whose owner was at odds with the city of Baltimore over aging Memorial Stadium. Wilson says no one he's ever talked to has had a kind thing to say about Memorial Stadium. The paint was peeling off the walls. Only some of the toilets worked. The stadium was a pit, and uh, the Colts wanted someplace new to play, and the city of Baltimore was like, no. And uh, they got into a tug-of-war over this team. Before our microphones, Robert Ursi told us he was not moving the blankety-blank team. If I did, I would tell you about it, okay? But we knew he had a wandering eye. We chased him to Phoenix, Jacksonville, Memphis. If you love the Colts, why don't you treat me right? But we found his lawyer in Indianapolis. Finally, it got to be too much. And so the city of Baltimore and the Maryland legislature threatened to use eminent domain to force the Colts to stay in Baltimore. Robert Ursay was a cantankerous alcoholic owner. I'm not saying that to defame the late guy. He was a mess. And he made impetuous decisions. But it wasn't until eminent domain came up that Robert said, well, you want to play Russian roulette with me? I'm going to I'm going to run. I'm going to go. I'm not I'm not going to see if there's a bullet in the gun or not. And so a fleet of Mayflower moving trucks made their way to the Colts complex in Owings Mills, Maryland. The trucks were loaded, and the drivers were told to scatter, drive 100 miles or so across the state border, get some sleep, and call back in the morning for your final destination. They didn't want to be stopped. They were worried that Baltimore would get wind of it, and they would send police or something out to stop the trucks. It's pretty amusing when you think about it. Load them up, and we'll tell you where you're going once you get on the road. That's funny funny, except for Baltimore fans and anyone who lived in one of the many major league cities across the U.S. and Canada, where team owners were saying, build me a new stadium or I'll leave. That was the game that Robert was playing. And it became, unfortunately, more popular with Al Davis and the Raiders. If you don't build what I want, if I don't get what I want, I'll move my team somewhere to somebody who will. And it's so one thing about covering the NFL as long as I have, and and I'm not speaking out of turn here. People have done it longer than I have. I'll tell you this. There is a bottom line to the NFL, and it's not about fan satisfaction. It's not about putting on a great product for you. That's part of it, but bottom line is money. The bottom line the NFL has always been about money. You can say it's unfair. You can say using public funds to build stadiums is wrong, and I wouldn't argue with you one minute. But make no mistake, teams have been picking up and moving to greener pastures for the entire history of pro sports in this country. The Colts entered the mythology because of those 14 Mayflower moving trucks and the midnight game of cat and mouse, not because the move started any kind of trend. The Colts move kind of ended up being pointed to by a lot of cities and owners as, you know, you don't want to be left like Baltimore. 
But, you know, if it hadn't been them, it might have been it might have been somebody else. That's Neil DeMoss. He's written a book and a blog called Field of Schemes. Certainly people still pointed to you don't want to be like Brooklyn when the Dodgers left for decades afterwards. And while, yes, the Dodgers did leave a lot of disappointed fans in Brooklyn when they left for Los Angeles in 1957, that move didn't create the same paradigm. If a team threatened to switch cities in the 60s, it was more like, well, allow us to you know, build this new stadium or build it for us and then we'll pay rent that'll pay off construction costs. That model was still more or less in place when Minneapolis built the Metrodome in 1982. It was fairly inexpensive and was paid back mostly through you know, rent and shared parking revenues and shared, uh, I think, uh, advertising revenues. But in the mid-80s, DeMoss says, team owners started looking around and thinking there might be a better way. It started with things like car factories and computer chip plants and things like that that were, you know, asking for money to build their their new homes in exchange for locating in a particular place. And uh, very quickly, you know, team owners, sports team owners realized, oh, you know, a, a high profile, uh, you know, business that uh, we can threaten to move to somewhere else. We got one of those. And so by the end of the 80s, teams were no longer saying, build us a new stadium and we'll pay you back. Instead, the message was, we want you to build this for us and then we're not going to pay anything back in rent or shared revenue or anything like that. And as soon as it started to work, you know, it really has just taken off and and never stopped. DeMoss says for a long time, this trend wasn't easy to spot, in part because stadium funding stories were covered locally, not nationally. In fact, if not for a random conversation with fellow writer Joanna Kagan, DeMoss might not have known about it either. We completely stumbled into this, right? It was end of 1995. We were both uh, working on this little uh, political zine called Brooklyn Metro Times that a bunch of us had started. At the time, the Yankees and then New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani were talking about building a new ballpark in Manhattan, paid for with public funds, even while DeMoss notes the city was slashing library hours. Meanwhile, in Cleveland, Joanna Kagan's hometown, schools were in receivership. But city officials were talking about using public funds to build a new NFL stadium after losing their team to Baltimore. We thought, wow, two different cities experiencing this at the same time. What an odd coincidence. This would make a great little thousand word story. So we start writing it, doing research, and we're calling around. We're hearing about like, oh, you know, the Brewers want a new stadium and the Mariners want a new stadium. And I remember very distinctly, we had a phone call where one of us said, I just had an hour and a half long phone call with a state legislator from Wisconsin. Oh, I just got an 80 page fax from Seattle. Perhaps this is more than a thousand word story. DeMoss and Kagan decided to write a book. And they thought that would be the end of it. This was mid-90s, and we thought, wow, you know, we sort of have happened upon this this trend that (laughs) is unprecedented in, uh, in sports history. You know, good timing on our part. You know, we'll never see this again. And, you know, 25 years later here, I'm still talking about it. As much as DeMoss would love to stop talking about the story someday, he really doesn't see that happening. At least, not if the team owners have anything to do with it. 
it's just part of the playbook, you know? Um, and this goes back to Jerry Reinsdorf when he was uh, owner of the White Sox, right? And there was a bill in the Illinois legislature to approve funding for a new stadium for the White Sox. And he got on a plane and he flew to Tampa Bay, which at the time did not have a team. And he visited a new stadium in St. Petersburg and then he flew back and they approved the bill. And years later, he was being interviewed by Cigar Aficionado magazine of all places. And they mentioned him, oh, hey, by the way, were you really going to move your team from Chicago, the, you know, one of the largest markets in the, in the country, to Tampa Bay, which is, you know, significantly smaller? And his answer was, well, you know, a savvy negotiator creates leverage. Truth is, no one wants to be like Baltimore Mayor William Schaefer, addressing the media the day after the Colts left in the middle of the night. I mean, I've tried and we work very, very hard, sometimes very quietly, sometimes with a little irritation. So in a way, this is personal. It gets to be a personal, very personal to me when uh, someone that I thought would at least pick up the phone and say to me, I'm going. Uh, but we didn't. I mean, obviously, you don't want to be mayor when your team leaves town. But if you look at the history of teams that have actually moved and the history of consequences for mayors, the number of mayors who have been voted out of office because people were mad that their sports team left is either zero or one, depending on whether you count Greg Nichols in Seattle as being voted out of office because the Sonics left, which had happened, or as people in Seattle suggested to me, he was voted out of office because there was a giant snowstorm and he didn't clear the streets, which also happened. So what happened in Baltimore? So the mayor of Baltimore lost the Colts. Guess what? He went on and became the governor. Didn't exactly pay a political price, but the fear of paying a political price really, I think, interferes with some more rational economically based arguments. That's David Swindell, associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at Arizona State University. He's been studying the economics of this question since he was in graduate school back in 1989. At the time, Fort Wayne, Indiana, was looking to build a minor league baseball stadium, and they were going to liquidate a public asset to pay for it. The professor suggested that, hey, somebody ought to do an economic impact analysis to see if this is really a good idea. So I did the analysis, and the answer was that, nope, this is a bad investment. Swindell had never done an economic impact analysis before, but he was a huge sports fan who believed, as many people did at the time, that sports were the answer to all urban problems. And so I went to the professor. I think I did something wrong because I already knew the answer, but the data wasn't supporting my answer. (laughs) Uh, And I said, nope, nope, that's right. We had been told throughout the, you know, the 70s and 80s that this was good for the local economy. But when you actually look at that as an opportunity cost, you have X number of public dollars from taxes that you can spend on something that's going to be good for the community. You probably want to try and maximize the impact of that. And sports has turned out to not be the best of those options. And the reason behind that is pretty simple. People spend a specific amount of money for entertainment. And if sports then is brought into the array of choices, all they're doing is shifting money from one entertainment venue 
to another entertainment venue. And that's not economic growth, right? That's, that doesn't change anything from the perspective of the local economy. It's just moving money around. That's great for the team owners. They love that, but not so good for the movie theater owner, you know, who's now losing customers. Over the years, Swindell has continued to research this question. And no matter how many times he does the math, the answer remains the same. It is unfortunate as a sports fan because I, I want sports to be the right answer. And yet, you know, the, the evidence is one that suggests that sports is really just not that big a, an impact in a local economy to justify large scale public investments. Plus the fact you're subsidizing rich people. So why have large-scale subsidies continued for so long? Basically, it's a function of the cartel. That's Mark Rosentraub, professor of sport management at the University of Michigan. And he says this fear that your team is going to move away in the middle of the night, it's exactly how the pro sports leagues want you to feel. The cartel's been really good at getting that message out. I don't say that out of meanness or saying, oh, my God, there's a bad, bad situation. No. That's their job. These are people who are in business to make money. Most of us price ourselves as much as we think we can get. Owner of a team is no different. I said, no, don't, don't ask an owner to do something that you wouldn't do. Mark Rosentraub and David Swindell have worked together a lot over the years. So when Swindell hears Rosentraub talking about the cartel, he knows it has nothing to do with a drug cartel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's a, in some ways an apt description. We are addicted to our sports. The idea, though, of, of a cartel is instead of having an open market of competitors, you have a closed market of producers, right? So there's X number of teams in a given professional league. And I can't, for instance, I can't get some of my friends together, um, start practicing playing football, and then challenge the Dallas Cowboys to a Monday night football game. I don't have access to that market. The cartel doesn't just limit the number of teams. It controls each team's geographic boundaries, artificially limiting competition. Austin, Texas can't just buy a baseball team and get to play against the Texas Rangers or Houston Astros. Major League Baseball sees the markets in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the Houston area as too close together. They overlap Austin. And so Austin doesn't get to have a team. Under normal circumstances, antitrust laws prevent cartels from forming. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that baseball was exempt from antitrust laws back in 1922. And over the past 100 years, that exemption has been applied to other pro sports leagues as well. This notion that the cartel shouldn't exist. We all agree the cartel shouldn't exist. But the problem is that it does. And it's been protected by two national governments. So now knowing that they do, how do you use the cartel structure itself to the advantage of a city? And how do you do that? You do that with real estate development. Rosentraub believes that there is a way to get what you want when negotiating with a major league sports team. The key is to not set your sights too high. The cartel is always going to make more money than the city because they are a cartel. But you can get things to a point where you can accomplish some certain goals, both financially and administratively, that at least gives you some return on your investment. That's exactly what Indianapolis tried to do when, more than a dozen years before the Hoosier Dome was even paid for, the Colts started making noise that they needed a new stadium. 
the Hoosier Dome slash renamed RCA Dome was the smallest venue in the NFL and they had a revenue problem. They weren't making enough money, or at least they weren't making the money they'd hoped they'd make. By this point, Robert Ursay had died and Jim Ursay had taken over. Jimmy didn't put a gun to their head like Robert did to Baltimore, but there was talk about it. And Ursay's message was clear. We're in the smallest facility and we have been for years. We're not making as much revenue as other NFL teams. We really need something bigger and better. When the city built the Hoosier Dome, later named the RCA Dome, they also built a convention center. And now city officials were saying that the convention center wasn't big enough either. And the city was proactive, I think, in saying, okay, we need this space where the RCA Dome is to expand the convention center. So the plan was we'll be able to expand our business and make more money with the convention center. And we should say, for the city, it wasn't just about expanding these two venues. It was also about where they were, in downtown Indianapolis, a stone's throw from the state capitol. Rosentraub says that was crucial. Indianapolis, like a lot of cities in our country, is suffering from high levels of economic segregation. What that means is that those people who can pay higher taxes don't live any any longer in the city of Indianapolis, which drives up the costs to deliver services to the people who do live there who are have lower incomes. So there is a logic to moving economic activity back in there. So the city of Indianapolis decided to, as Rosentraub puts it, use the cartel to direct economic activity at its downtown. But remember, when the Hoosier Dome was built, one third of the money had come from the Lilly Endowment. That wasn't an option this time around. So the deal would require state funding to move forward. The city knew they couldn't make a purely economic argument. But there was another argument that could be made. So Mark Rosentraub and David Swindell set out to measure the intangible benefits of the Colts staying in Indy. It's intangible, meaning there's no economic, direct economic gain. It's what you feel in your heart. I go to a lot of games with my grandkids. It's a way of bonding them to me over time. Now, could we have gone on a bike ride? I'm sure. Could we have gone camping? No, because I don't, I don't do camping but I do sports, all right? So that's the intangible benefits. Now, how do you measure that? The technique for measuring intangible benefits is called contingent valuation. It was developed back in the 1970s by the Environmental Protection Agency. And they actually developed this research methodology to try to quantify the benefit of protecting a spotted owl. And so a team of researchers started calling people around the state of Indiana a random sample, men and women, people who went to games and people who didn't. We asked them just straight out, how much civic pride do you feel that you derive from that? A lot, some, you know, just kind of simple questions like that. The researchers asked people to place a value on keeping the Colts in Indianapolis. What's that worth to you? And then they asked the more important question, how much would you be willing to pay? If the Colts were to build a new stadium or if the Pacers were to build a new arena, or leave town, would you be willing to pay $2 a month in additional taxes to subsidize the cost of that facility? 
if you're willing to pay $2, then we would ask them, would you be willing to pay $4? Okay. And if they say no to that, then we realize that they're willing to pay between two and $4 a month in additional taxes. And that gave us kind of a, a, a basis for putting a broad range of dollar values on these intangible benefits. They're real, they're intangible, but they are real and people really will pay for this. And it's their tax dollar. Mark Rosentraub was involved in the negotiations. I was gonna be biased because I, you know, it was one of those things. Yes, I was in the room, borrowing the line from Hamilton. I was there, so clearly I'm not a unbiased observer. But one of the things we did do was to identify the intangible benefits of the team to the state of Indiana and use that to convince the state of Indiana to actually make a significant investment in the facility. The research showed that people in Indiana, by and large, would be happy with the investment. And as far as Colts beat writer Philip Wilson remembers, they were. All I ever remember reading about was how much more money they're going to make using that space for the convention center. I'm probably sounding like a politician. I'm probably parroting what they said at the time. And Indianapolis got something they'd wanted for a long, long time. Tell you what, people said Indianapolis is going to get a Super Bowl. We've been here all week. Awesome. This thing's worked out really, oh, really well. It's one of the few towns where you can just walk to everything. Indy. Lucas Oil hosted the Super Bowl, That one of the ones that Eli beat uh, Tom Brady. We don't talk about those. <laughs> well, and that was a really cool thrill. You know, I remember taking the shuttle back to J.W. Marriott after the game thought, wow, Super Bowl in my town, and I'm just driving 20 minutes down Meridian to get home. Okay, so it's probably not going to come as a surprise that Field of Schemes author Neil DeMoss believes Indianapolis paid too high a price for what it got. You know, just for starters, you have to look at, you know, what's the opportunity cost, right? If you would take the money and spend it on something else, what else could you have gotten? If you build a stadium, you build a stadium and you get a stadium, right? You know, you get all the things that come with the stadium, you get a Super Bowl. The problem is the Super Bowl isn't worth all that much, you know? If you look at the at the actual numbers, again, in terms of like, you know, let's look at February spending in this city versus February spending the year before when there was no Super Bowl. You know, it goes up a little bit, it's not nothing. But it's nice, but it's not worth spending, I don't know, half a billion dollars in order to get you know, one time the Super Bowl comes and you get an extra $6 million in tax receipts. There's way better bang for your buck that you can get. Not to mention, this commitment Indianapolis has made to becoming a sports town, it hasn't just meant two new stadiums for the Colts. They've also built arenas for the Pacers and spent money on a minor league ballpark. So I think Indianapolis, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to make comparisons, but you could make a good case that Indianapolis is the city that has spent the most on its sports teams, you know, not just again to obtain them or to build new buildings for them, but then to keep them happy year after year after year. I guess if they want to uh, claim the mantle of number one in sports subsidies, I won't argue with them. Mark Rosentraub sees it differently. But remember, he was in the room for at least one of these deals. And by his own admission, that makes him a bit biased. Indianapolis was very aggressive in dealing with two cartels. They have given a lot of money to the Pacers and a lot of money to the Colts. The issue, though, is to look at 
downtown Indianapolis and say, did the city of Indianapolis get what it wanted? And the answer is they got what they wanted. They got downtown urban neighborhoods. They got a downtown that has a high degree of, of viability, vibrancy, et cetera. That was worth it to them. The cartel is always going to get more. But in Rosentraub's opinion, the cartel structure also protects a city's investment. There is no other activity a city can do that can't be replicated by a suburban area. And Indianapolis is the great case in point, because what what has happened in Indianapolis is the fact that while we did develop an amazing downtown, other suburban cities also built at the same time what I call faux downtowns. And they attracted people who wanted the urban lifestyle, and they put it in the suburbs. So the example I always use, Indianapolis has a symphony orchestra, but so too does Carmel. Downtown Indianapolis has something Carmel can't have, professional sports. There will be no other NFL team in the market other than the one that's in downtown Indianapolis. There will be no other baseball team than the minor league team that plays, and the Indiana Pacers will only play in downtown. So that's why we focus on it, because of the fact that it is a cartel. You got to use the environment for your advantage. Mark Rosentraub and David Swindell have done a lot of research together over the years. But when you talk to them both about the research they've done together, Rosentraub paints a rosier picture than Swindell does. Here's David Swindell. Some of the work that Mark and I have done over the years, uh, specifically focused on Indianapolis, suggests that they they did did okay. The question really is, if you look at other communities that didn't make the heavy investment in sports, how did they do? They, you know, similar circumstance to Indianapolis, Rust Belt City, you know, coming out of the decline of the 70s and um, the shifting economy. They invested in other things. How did they do? Some of them did worse. Some of them did a lot better. If you use Mark Rosentraub's measure of success, Indianapolis got what they set out to get. They wanted to direct economic activity to the downtown, and to a certain extent, they did. And they wanted to become known as a sports town, and they certainly are that. Sports kind of put Indianapolis on the map. It has certainly become part of the the civic identity of Indianapolis. They are the home to the Indianapolis 500, to the Brickyard 400 to the Pacers, to the Colts. Collegiate, they host the NCAA Final Four basketball tournament more often than anybody else. So there's a lot, they've made a heavy investment in that. The question really is, what could they have done with that money that might have generated better job opportunities, better infrastructure, companies that were gonna come in that could have paid much better than sports pay. Sports jobs just don't pay well. And if you look at the amount of money that's spent per job created, you find that Indianapolis actually spent a lot of money for some pretty low-paying jobs. If a city really wanted to generate better job opportunities, David Swindell says they'd be better served by investing in other things. Much less sexy investments like schools or sewer sanitation lines, high-end public transportation, utility fees, all those other things that facilitate companies wanting to relocate to a particular area because you can't build an economy on sports. Let's just say that again. 
you can't build an economy on sports. No matter how much a city's identity is built on a team, no matter how many people attend games and eat at the restaurant near the stadium and buy gear at the pro shop, you just can't build an economy on sports. Which is why cities should know. You have options. Don't feel that you're being held hostage because if the team does leave, guess what? The economy is not going to know it. The economy is not going to blip. <laughs> if the Colts left today, it's not going to affect the local economy. Next week, we're going to bring this conversation beyond Indianapolis and into the present. Despite mega deals like the one to build a new stadium in Buffalo, public money spent on sports venues is trending down. So what's working, what's not working, and what model might actually work better? This episode was produced by Karen Given. Be sure to subscribe to the Global Sport Matters podcast wherever you listen to get notified of new episodes. Find more stories, research, and articles in our June digital issue, The Return on Our Sports Investment, now live at globalsportmatters.com. Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our senior coordinator of digital content is Brendan Clean. Our manager of strategic initiative is me, Kendall Jones. And our marketing and event assistants are Luke Padway, Kate Nelson, and Aiden Corrales. You can also find and follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS.